You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. We're taking your calls, 011-8830702 and the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. We've got the Naked Scientist in the building digitally and he will be taking all of your science-related questions, so get them through. Dr. Chris Smith, how are you doing? Happy Monday. Yeah, happy Monday to you as well. How are you doing? I am good. I'm recovered. I just had a couple of days of that weird bug that circulates in the house from person to person and then just like kind of never leaves. So we are back. We have a voice and we're able to work and we'll keep pushing on as best as we can. Um, But I'm so looking forward because there's some interesting questions that have already come through. So let's jump straight to the lines. We've got Laurel in four ways. Hi, Laurel. Hello, good afternoon. Um, hi, Chris. Um, the, the Aurora Borealis lights, they seem to be appearing more and more above the United Kingdom. And I wonder, is, is the reason because the axis of the Earth is shifting and the magnetic poles are therefore shifting? Hi, Lauren. The answer is that, first of all, what are the northern and southern lights? So the Aurora Borealis, the northern lights, and Aurora Australis, the southern lights, they're both the same phenomenon, which is that the planet is surrounded by a magnetic field, which resembles a big bar magnet inside the Earth running north-south, with the the lines coming out of of the field, coming out of the poles in a giant uh, curve around the Earth and going in at the opposite pole. It gives the Earth an apple shape in terms of these concentric field lines. And coming from the sun is this million-mile-an-hour maelstrom of charged particles that we call the solar wind, because the sun is a giant nuclear reactor and it is expelling into the space around it and racing out across the solar system this stream of material. Because the particles are charged, they interact with magnetic fields. This has the effect, because the Earth is surrounded by one, of deflecting and guiding the solar wind around the field lines. But because they curve down towards the poles, these charged particles running along a million plus miles an hour, are guided down towards the poles, the north and the south. And when they get there, they are brought close to the upper reaches of our atmosphere, full of nitrogen chiefly, about 80%, and oxygen, 20%. They interact with the gases in the upper atmosphere, and they give some of the energy that they've got to those gases, and they cause the electrons the negative particles in those gas molecules to temporarily jump up to what we call a higher energy state and then they drop back down again to their starting position and the only way that they can give out the energy they've absorbed is in unique colours of light which is why we see these greens and these reds and occasionally blue colours but they're chiefly dominated by those particular colours and that's why the effect is concentrated over the poles because these particles are being guided there by the magnetic field lines which curve in towards the Earth at the poles. Now the Sun, which is the source of those particles, is not a static thing. It goes through phases of more intense and less intense solar activity over an 11-year cycle. And we're actually building up towards a solar maximum at the moment. And this means it will produce more of these sorts of of material ejections, it will produce more solar flares and a more intense solar wind. And this means we're going to see more of these sorts of phenomena in the months and years ahead as the sun reaches its solar maximum. It's not to do with the tilt of the Earth. That does change, and it changes over a you know tens of thousands of year process. We have what's called precession. As the Earth goes around the sun, it vibrates and, and oscillates on its 
axis a bit. At the moment, we're tilted at 23 and a half degrees. But because of that axis wobble, it wobbles between about naught degrees straight up and down and a bit further than 23 and a half degrees, 24, 25 degrees. But it does that over really long periods of time and changes only very slowly. And that therefore does not account for this. It's more a product of a chance and b what the sun is doing in terms of its ejection of the material that makes the northern and southern lights for us here on Earth. Thank you so much, Laurel, for that question. Let's go to Mkhengwe in Bromfisherville. Hi. Hi, Mkhengwe here. How are you? Good, thanks. And you? Uh, please ask uh, the next scientist, do twins have identical fingerprints? Mm. Can you distinguish the one from the other by way of fingerprints? All right, and and are you asking about all twins or specifically identical twins? All twins. All twins. Doctor? Right, first of all, twins, how do they form? Well, they come in two different flavours, don't they? Identical and non-identical, as you quite rightly say, Lebo, this this is the critical distinction because a non-identical pair of twins are produced when a woman ovulates two eggs simultaneously, both get fertilised and both implant. Because they are two separate eggs and two separate sperm, these are genetically distinct individuals, which is why you can have a boy and a girl, you have two boys or two girls, they do not look at all alike other than a normal brother and sister. They just happened to be born at the same time. Whereas identical twins, something a bit special happens. In that in that situation, one egg got ovulated, one sperm fertilised that egg, so you've got one individual. But as the embryo began to develop, just by chance, it split into two. And because one embryo with one set of genetic material in it became two individuals, they must share their genetic material. Therefore, they are clones of each other. They are genetically the same. They follow the same developmental guidance that the DNA messages that tell a body how to put itself together dictate. Therefore, they look the same and through life they look broadly the same. But there are subtle differences because the effects of life and the effects of chance, environment, diet and upbringing and so on do change the way they look. There are some factors, although they're following a recipe laid down in your DNA, that are nevertheless subject to some random chance as we develop. And our fingerprints are an example of this. Although the broad structure of the fingerprint is there genetically determined, because there's chance in how it actually forms, there will therefore be a difference between two identical pairs of twins, despite the fact that they are genetically identical and may have broadly similar sorts of patterns. They will be fingerprint uh, distinguished between the two because chance has intervened in terms of the way in which their body puts itself together. And that's why if you look at a genetically identical pair of twins, although they look very, very similar, they don't look identical. And you can tell them apart when you get used to them, you know what to look for. There might be a mole in one place that's missing on the other person, or they might have a slightly different uh, colour to their hair, or their eyebrow might be slightly different on one side compared to the other. And you can spot these differences because that's where the environment has changed the development process a bit, just due to chance during development. And that's why they look different. And it's the same for fingerprints. Thank you so much uh, for that question, Mkhengwe. We're going to take a quick break and then we pick up with your calls and your WhatsApps.
702. The Naked Scientist. And we're still with Dr. Chris Smith taking your calls on 011-883-0702 and the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. All of your science-related questions. Let's go to Marissa in Johannesburg. Hi, Marissa. Hi, how are you guys? Good, thanks. And you? Good. So, my daughter wants to know, why do your eyes water when you yawn? Mm, why do your eyes water when you yawn? What is your daughter's name, Marissa? Uh, Shana, but she's not in the she's not out of school yet, and she keeps asking me. And I said, <laughs> I'm going to try one day and get through. Well, we're going to we're going sh- to say, I'm talking to the naked scientist. I'm asking your question. She says, record it, record it. We will at least you can get the podcast. So, Doctor Chris, please address Shayna via the proxy <laughs> mom, Marissa. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Shane. Hello, Shane. Hello, Marissa. The answer to this is, first of all, where do tears come from? Tears are made in your lacrimal gland. Lacrimo in Latin means I cry, which is why we call it the lacrimal gland. And blood is passed through that gland, and the gland helps itself to the watery parts of blood and a few other things as well, and then secretes the watery parts into a duct system that drains down towards the eye, and nerve signals tell the gland to produce tears at the right rate. When we get upset and we want to cry, you augment the rate when we go to sleep, and you want to turn down the rate of tear production, it dries up because the nerve supply drops. When we uh, are, are just behaving normally and our eyes are lubricated by the tears, they flow from one side of our eyes across the eyeball and they go down a small plug hole called a punctum, which if you look along your lower eyelid, you'll see a tiny black dot next to your nose in your lower eyelid, roughly where the eyelashes come out, right in the middle. This is a connection down into your nasolacrimal sac and from there the nasolacrimal duct runs into your nose. So tears come out of the lacrimal gland across your eye, washing it, cleaning it, lubricating it and dealing with infection because there are all kinds of infection fighting things in the tear film as well. And then the excess goes down that plug hole and is drained away down your nose and you swallow it. So you recycle your tears effectively. But when you yawn, what do you do? You and now everyone in sympathy with this program is yawning, not because it's boring. But you see, no, you did it to me. <laughs> um, when you do that, what did you do? Think about the facial contortion that you pulled when you yawned. You screwed up your eyes. Yes. And when you do that, what you do is A, squeeze your lacrimal gland a bit to make more tears come out. But B, you also squeeze shut the duct system that would be draining the tears out of your eye. So you've got more tears with nowhere to go. So where do they go? They fall out down your face if you yawn hard enough. And that's why it looks like you're crying. Okay, okay. I, I, I think that is quite a, a simple and easy to explain one. But the part of it being contagious still gets to me because it doesn't matter how hard you try. You just catch on and end up doing it as well. Let's look at some of the WhatsApp questions that have come through. One says... Um, Oh, now the message just absolutely disappeared. Okay. Can you please ask Dr. Chris, how possible is it for a nine-year-old girl uh, to give birth before even reaching puberty? Can you please explain how it happens? Because science tells us that they cannot produce ovaries. This is RT in Pretoria. Uh, RT. It's a, a, a striking but true fact that when you look at a woman who's pregnant, if she's got a girl baby inside her then all of her grandchildren are effectively already there because when a girl baby is developing the future eggs that she's going to ovulate move into her ovaries 
from a few weeks into her development. So in other words, all the eggs that that girl, when she becomes a woman, is going to have for her entire lifetime to reproduce with are all there inside her mum when that baby is a matter of weeks old, developing inside the mum. It's a striking thing. So you're born with your ovaries full of potential eggs that are in a state of suspended animation. They haven't activated yet, they haven't gone anywhere yet, they haven't been released yet, but they're there waiting. And the signal they're waiting for are two things. One, you go into puberty. At In girls, it's often earlier than in boys, but most girls are going into puberty, some as young as nine, but most of them beyond the age of 10, 11, 12. And it seems to be proportional to body fat. So once you have the right amount of body mass, you then initiate hormonal changes that trigger the development of and an onward maturation of the ovary so it's ready to start releasing eggs. And then in response to a signal coming from the brain's pituitary gland, every month you stimulate the production of eggs from the ovary and, and uh, probably about 100 of these potential eggs start to mature each month but one outgrows all the others. The rest all regress, and that one that's the magic one is released and ovulated, and that's got the chance to meet a sperm if you have sex, and that can produce offspring. Now, in order for that process to be working, you have to have gone through puberty. There are some exceptions to this, which are that there are some hormonal problems. There are, sometimes it can be genetic. Sometimes there can be some other cause for the production of, of aberrant hormone signals that can cause what we call precocious puberty, where a person who's otherwise too young to go into puberty can go into puberty and therefore potentially begin to release eggs. But I don't think there are any examples of girls having babies before they've actually gone through the process of puberty because they wouldn't be ovulating until they go through puberty. And at that point, they then start their periods. And that normally in girls, some some can be 12 or 13, most girls 14 to 15. It varies geographically, it varies by nutritional status, and as I say, body mass, how, how much fat you have, is a strong trigger for both puberty but also the onset of menstruation in girls because that's the body's way of knowing that you have enough energy reserves and you're grown enough to potentially accommodate producing a new life. Okay, thank you so much for that question. Let's go to a voice note. Hi, my name is Zoe, and I just wanted to ask, why is human DNA so different? Hello, Zoe. I guess what you're asking is that um, we've got three billion DNA genetic letters in the code for a human. And if we look across the world at the eight billion people on Earth, and we exclude the handful of people who are identical twins because they are clones, every single one of those 8 billion people is genetically different. We all have a genetic code that is distinguished from other people, which is just an amazing thing. And this is what creates genetic diversity. And the way this happens is that when you have a mum and a dad, and the dad makes sperm, which has half of his genetic material, and the mum makes eggs, which is half of her genetic material, and the two are put together, so they make half and half makes one, a complete set of genetic material. When dad makes sperm and when mum has made eggs, there are changes which occur in the DNA of those cells which mix up the genes a bit in order to make the message slightly different in each of them from the mum 
or from the dad. So when you put the two together, A, you've got half of your mum and half of your dad in you, but you've also got changes in what your dad gave you that make it different from dad and changes in what your mum gave you that make it different from mum. So you get this enormous amount of mixing. So across the three billion genetic letters that are in a person that contain all the recipes for the 20,000 genes that are the instruction manual for how a person works, you get all these changes and those changes are what make us the individuals that we are, both genetically, but they're why we all look different as well, because our bodies develop and follow a pattern of development dictated by the messages in those genes. And if they're all different, we're all going to look different. So if you look at how different each person looks on Earth, you know how different they are in terms of their DNA underneath. Indeed. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith. We'll be back with you next week.